Thank you for joining us on Longest War. On this episode, we have former Army Aviation Officer and Executive Director of the GWAP Memorial Foundation, Andrew Brennan. Here in the company of the generation that won the war, I proudly accept the World War II Memorial on behalf of the people of the United States of America. Today we are surrounded by monuments to some of the greatest figures in our history while we gather at this national memorial to remember and honor the Americans who fought for freedom in Korea. This monument also will serve as a symbol of hope to the Congress of the United States and to the leaders of America that we indeed have a debt to the men and women who served in Vietnam. A debt is yet to be repaid, particularly for those who need special help. On September the 11th, enemies of freedom committed an act of war against our country. Our war on terror, it will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found stopped and defeated. Post 9-11 veterans are a different breed of veteran. I would imagine that a post 9-11 memorial would be different than the existing memorials. Post 9-11 veterans need our own memorial because we owe it to these young men and women that gave their lives, uh, that they're not forgotten, that we can teach future generations about what selflessness, what courage really is. The post 9-11 veterans need a memorial so that we can go there and celebrate the life that they served honoring their country to allot us the freedoms that we have today. I have three children and I can tell them my story, but it's hard to express the kind of the breadth and the, the, the gravity of our, what we did there. And I think a memorial represents that and that presents a legacy that will span across to my grandchildren, to my great-great-grandchildren. We need a memorial to heal. We need a memorial to honor. We need a memorial to remember. We need a memorial to educate future generations of Americans about our nation's longest war and the men and women who served in it. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us today, man. Yeah, thanks, Nick. Appreciate being on. You were a Black Hawk pilot uh, in the Army. Uh, you went to West Point yep. in 2004. What was the motivation behind going to West Point? Uh, yeah, so I was a junior in high school when 9-11 happened, and um, I went to a private high school here in Pittsburgh, Central Catholic, and, um, you know, I really hadn't given uh, military service a, a strong shake prior to that. I was really uh, focused on probably going to Notre Dame and, and doing the law track. You know, I'd had some folks in my family that had served. My grandfather served in World War II. His three older brothers served. Um, I had a uh, cousin once removed, killed in the Idrang Valley uh, in the movie, you know, that's depicted uh, the movie We Were Soldiers. Mm -hmm. uh, so his name's on, on panel E3 of the Vietnam Wall. And uh, he's actually from Braddock. So right up, you know, my family's from right up the river here from Homestead. So, but nobody in my immediate family ha had served in the military. So that really wasn't on my radar. And then 9-11 uh, happened and, you know, that had a pretty big impact. You know, we were, we were about, you know, close in age. I think about within six weeks of coming back from, you know, that event, I, I kind of came home from school one day and told my dad I'd planned on dropping out of high school in the fall and enlisting in the Marine Corps. He was not uh, not thrilled with uh, that idea, mostly because uh, my grandfather, my dad, my dad's three brothers are all steam fitters. Uh, nobody in my family had gone to college. And the whole reason my dad had sacrificed to keep my sister and I in private school was, was you know, the idea was we'd go to college. So uh, his response quite literally was, uh, you know, the hell you are. You know, you're, you're, the whole intent here was for you to go to college. So he's like, you do that first, you do whatever you want. And uh, so then I made, I shifted my focus and decided that uh, uh, I was going to do the uh, military route. 
and actually kind of fell short of the mark initially. Um, I applied to the Air Force Academy and Naval Academy in high school because I wanted to be a fixed wing pilot. And then um, I didn't get any either of the service schools, but I got a ROTC scholarship through the Navy. So I went to civilian school here in Pittsburgh for a year on scholarship, but I, uh, I hated Carnegie Mellon University. There's way too many smart kids there for me. I reapplied to all three of the service academies at that point and uh, was fortunate enough to get into West Point. And, you know, somebody, a uh, former West Point grad had kind of put his arm around me. He was like, hey, man, like, same essay as Navy, scratch out Navy, put Army over top, and uh, <laughs> right. you can fly rotary in the Army. So that's what ended up happening. How long were you at West Point before, like, you learned what your branch would be that you would actually be able to fly? Yeah, we didn't find that out until October, November of senior year. So it's, it's, it's all based on, at least when I was there, I think they've changed the process slightly now. But when I was there, it was completely based on order of merit in the class. So, I mean, everything went into your, your grades, your military scores, your physical fitness scores. And at the time, uh, you normally had to be in the top half of the class to get aviation. Uh, the, my year was the first year that they allowed the aviation branch to be uh, what they call ad-sewed. So, like, I think 15 or 20 percent of the slots that were available by the Department of the Army, you could agree to do three years of active duty service in addition to what you would owe for, you know, for uh, serving at West Point. So you, instead of owing five years active duty, you'd owe eight. And that didn't include your time at flight school. So you're still attacking on however long it took you to get through flight school. But that guaranteed you a, a slot? So the last, yeah, so the last 15 or 20% of the slots. So if you, essentially the way that worked was if, you know, you were the 74th person in the class, like let's say the last, you know, there was 100 aviation slots and the last 25% were ad syllable. If you were the 74th person in the class that put aviation and you got it based on order of merit, they went to the next person. And if they put aviation, but they didn't agree to add so, they got skipped and they got put into their like second or third choice of branch. But then somebody else further down the class that had agreed to do the extra service got the slot. So no one knew what was going to happen with our class, which was kind of interesting because they had never offered the program before. Right. And it was funny because, like I said, the branch used to go out in the top half of the class. But what ended up happening is nobody expected anybody would be able to uh, get aviation like really low in the class. Uh, I'm not going to name this individual, but somebody that was ranked very low in the class. And like the, like, I think we graduated like nine, six, 960 some. Uh, there was somebody that was ranked like 930 in the class who put, you know, at aviation number one and they add so for it. And they ended up they were like the last aviation slot in their class. So they got they got the branch. Yeah. Not the guy you want to be flying with. <laughs> Actually, I mean, he, you know, he's a pretty, pretty good pilot. You know, he was a, he's a hard-nosed, uh, we'll say, tough guy, sport guy at West Point. But, do they uh, do branch detail? Do they do that at West Point? They do. It's only certain branches, and I, that was not an option, you know, for me. So I didn't really pay too much attention to it. But I know that there were, I know there were some military intelligence officers that were branch detailed infantry or armor prior to. And I, I think there might have been another branch or two that you could get branch detailed through. And that was like a year or two. Didn't add to your time, your commitment, no. right? Okay. I, I knew a guy. He wanted to be Intel. He was so excited he got Intel, but then they're like, extra better news. You get to go be infantry for two years. And it's like, sure as shit, man. Like, he finishes like IOBC and he's like in Iraq like three months later. Yep. That's how they get you, man. But uh, did you like West Point? There's kind of a, a running uh, joke and or saying is that, you know, it's a great place to get into. It's a great place to be from. It's not a great place to be. Yeah. But uh, I'll tell you that. You know, after, you know, because I had a little bit of a unique experience having, you know, gone to civilian school prior, you know, and ha having had that chance to be in, you know, a normal college setting and not going straight from mom and dad's house to military school. Um, and, you know, and I think the prior service uh, enlisted folks that came to the academy and folks that had, 
either gone to college or had done something else prior to coming to the academy, you know, had kind of matured a little bit and, you know, weren't just coming, like I said, straight out of mom and dad's house, you know, cause I had, I had classmates at uh, Carnegie Mellon. They're like, why are you leaving here? Like you're giving up a year of, you know, uh, school that you're not going to get back. You're going to get to hang a degree from Carnegie Mellon on the back of your wall behind your desk, you know, for the rest of your life. This is not a slouch school and you're guaranteed to get, you know, I was going to get aviation, uh, through the Marine Corps, either, you know, jets or, uh, or helicopters. And, um, they're like, you know, you're going to get everything you ideally want, but you're leaving here to go to, you know, West Point. Like, why would you do that? And, uh, I couldn't really give a firm, uh, answer at the time, but when you actually look at, for instance, you know, at, at Carnegie Mellon, you know, let's say I had 4,000 in my, my class, you know, Janet's going to go, going to go be an actress and this guy's going into computer science and John's going, you know, to be a engineer and everybody's going, you know, part in separate ways and going different places and, you know, very smart group of people, but there was just not that group mentality there. Uh, whereas, you know, so I've always said, you know, you go to a place like Carnegie Mellon, you know, you surround yourself with 1200 really smart people. You go to a place like West Point, not only are those people also very smart, but they're very motivated. Um, sure. and, and in my class in particular, like I said, you know, I was a year, year older. So most of the, you know, 80% of my class or so were sophomores in high school and they watched 9-11 happen. And in fact, the year that, the year that I got accepted and entered in 04, so all those applications were coming into the admissions office in 02, uh, or I'm sorry, in 03, that year, you know, the Princeton Review, I think, or U.S. News and World Report, one of the two, uh, rated West Point as like one of the hardest schools in the country to be admitted to because there were so many more applicants to the service academies with, because of that, again, that was that very impressionable group that saw 9-11 happen. Uh, so the number of applications, which I think is about 16,000 a year into West Point was more like 20 or 21,000. So people got very motivated to, to go serve. And, and it was a, you know, it was a very different mentality group. You know, not only were we all wanting to go do the same thing and lead, you know, America's most prized possessions as, as platoon leaders and, and, uh, you know, junior officers, but, we also knew we would be doing that, you know, at war. So I've said that, you know, since I, uh, when I got to the academy, it took me about two years, but I, I kind of came up with an answer to that question I was getting asked when I was at CMU, like, why are you leaving here? And I said, you know, I, I met some of the best people in my entire life uh, while I was there. So some of my classmates and some of the instructors I had there. And um, it's just a, it's a solid group of people that, you know, have, you know, have the desire to do the right thing and, um, you know, and they want to serve. So. You lost that year at CMU. You had to start over. Yep. So five yeah. years of college. Five years of college. Validated a couple of classes. I didn't have to take like freshman English and a couple other things. But That's it, nice. Yeah. Yeah. For <laughs> the grand scheme, it doesn't really do shit. Like, yep. Okay. It's the lost year. You were on a scholarship though to CMU at least, right? I was. For ROTC. Okay. So it's not like you, you left there with 35000 in debt. Correct. That's always helpful. So you get aviation. You're jazzed up, I imagine. Yep. And then how long between when you graduate do you go to flight school? You know, out of the academy, uh, you know, some of the ROTC uh, folks, they wait quite a while. But uh, we got 30 or, or I'm sorry, uh, yeah, 36, 30 or 60 days of paid leave after graduation. And then we started school immediately. So most of my classmates were, were down to Fort Rucker uh, within three to four to five months because we had to do a, a course prior to at either Benning or Fort Sill. It was like six or seven week long course. It was a lot of like bare bones, basics, infantry tactics. They've since canceled the course. General Dempsey canceled that when he was a trade op commander because there really wasn't a good return on investment for it, to be honest. What was like a watered down IOBC or something? It, very much so. Yeah. And, and honestly, I think a lot of that was in response to the whole Jessica Lynch debacle with that whole unit, right? Sure. Um, we realized that we were on an asymmetrical battlefield and 
and you know, in my opinion, and and you know, yours may differ, but uh, the Marine Corps has been doing business the right way since day one, right? It's like everybody's primary branch, you know, at least everybody's trained. Everybody's trigger puller, yeah. Everybody's a trigger puller. Everybody's trained in basic infantry tactics, whether you're a clerk or or an actual infantryman. Um, so I think the Marines, you know, that highlighted a major uh, downfall for the Army back when that, you know, first happened. And uh, the response to that, you know, as opposed to spending the money and training everybody at that infantry level like the Marine Corps does, because Marine Corps is much smaller and they're able to do that. You know, in, in the Army's case, what they decided to do is try to do this watered-down course with all of the junior officers and assume that, you know, what they learned there would then kind of trickle down economics, so to speak, sure. down to the Back unit to level. Unit. Yeah, doesn't work that way. Not real well. So, yeah, General Dempsey, when he when he took over, he came to Fort Rucker doing his tour of all the different trade-off posts. And he, uh, at one point, he just snagged a couple of lieutenants, like, uh, it was unplanned. He just pulled a bunch of people into a room and, like, he wanted to know two things, like, why are some of you sitting around here on hold at flight school? Because we had a big delay in some of the training down there. And then the other question he wanted to know is, was this bullet two course worth it? And uh, everybody was like, no, sir, it was kind of a waste of time. So it got canceled within like a year. Because all the stuff you were learning there, you, you had learned at West Point over the years, right? We did, yeah. I mean, a lot of it was review. You know, it's, it's, it's not a bad deal to be able to kind of practice that stuff again. I will say that, I mean, it, there was a very different level of knowledge base that came into that comparing and I'm not by any stretch like bashing like ROTC as a as a program because you know they produce four times the number of officers that the academy does every fiscal year but some of the folks that came out of some of the you know smaller ROTC units that don't get as much opportunity to do like weekend training and stuff I mean their level of expertise that they brought in that was a little different than some of uh, what we did but you know I mean we lived it for four years in college whereas you know they were doing normal college and doing you know kind of army on the weekend so when, how long are you on lockdown at West Point for? Generally, the first two years, you're, you don't you don't leave a whole a whole lot. Like it's like being in the army, right? Like you got to have permission to go visit your mother if you want to. I mean, it's like that the whole four years. Yeah, I mean, even even senior year, but yeah, your junior and senior year, you get a lot more uh, freedom. You know, you're down. You can take the train down to New York City quite a bit, and uh, and actually start to have a little bit of a normal college experience when you're not actually on uh, uh, on post. Let's fast forward to flight school. You ended up flying Blackhawks. Is that what you? Is that what you wanted? Did you want to fly Blackhawks? No, uh, I actually wanted to be a Chinook pilot because that was they were doing most of the heavy lifting in Afghanistan. When I say heavy lifting, I mean they they're a heavy lift helicopter, but um, they were doing most of the work because you know the flight envelope in Afghanistan it, it's high. Even the you know the um, even the bottoms of the valleys, it's, it's you know that portion of the eastern portion of Afghanistan. While it's very mountainous, the the country as a whole generally is considered high plains. So um, you know you're looking at uh, you know, the valleys were 6,500 feet, 7,200 feet, you know, field elevation for the airfield. So you're landing at landing zones that are at, you know, eight, sometimes nine, as high as 10,000 feet. And the Blackhawk is, is underpowered at that uh, altitude. So you get to a point in the summer where the temperature is very high. You're at a high elevation and, you know, you, if you become very power limited to the point where in some landing zones you can only have five troops. Well, Guess what? Like if you're trying to put 30 guys on the ground, transfer to platoon. Yeah, that's a problem. You're talking. You're talking six helicopters. That doesn't make any tactical sense. Right. So the Chinooks were used primarily for all of the air assaults. So that's what I wanted to fly. Or all the sling load missions too, right? Because they're they're slinging heavy shit. The yeah. 155s. We we actually flew Blackhawks. We flew quite a few sling loads in our area of operation, uh, specifically resupplying some of the OPs because some of the areas were really tight. So the, like with the mountain and the you know mountains and 
some of the ridge lines. So it was like hard for the Chinook sometimes to actually get into some of these OPs to resupply them. So we did a quite a few sling loads. In what, our, what could you take? Could you do food, water, ammo, or could you do, could you move a, uh, fuel. a howitzer out there if you needed to? I don't know. No way we could do a howitzer, but we, yeah, we moved fuel, um, blew bits up to them. Uh, we slung a generator once that I remember, but yeah, normally it was just, you know, it was food and water and ammo. I mean, we would do ammo resupplies via speedball. My unit did a bunch of firefights. I never actually put a speedball into a firefight, but we did standard speedball resupplies to guys that were out on, um, you know, delivered operations or movement to contacts and new valleys that we moved out in, you know, that the ground unit moved out into. But yeah, we would just fly by um, and just kick open the cabin door and slide a uh, body bag out full of, you know, loaded magazines and water and MREs for the to resupply the guys on the ground. How many dishkas did you guys come across? Two, actually. People that don't know at home, like dishkas, any aircraft, 50 caliber machine gun that are fucking everywhere in Afghanistan. Yeah, they do not leave those in place very long. I mean, when they when they try to bring down an aircraft with those, they fire and then they move them immediately because they don't want us to locate where they are. And, right. Um, but and they yeah. fire for like a thousand rounds. Like they could run through pallets of that shit. Yep. So at any rate, yeah, I didn't end up getting uh, Chinooks because the Army, um, because they realized they needed all these Chinook pilots uh, a few years prior to me entering flight school, they managed to get themselves into a 200% strength, for, strength position for lieutenants and warrant officers in the Chinook community. So the Army's response to that was to close down the Chinook pipeline while we were at flight school. So my class uh, didn't get offered a single Chinook transition until like the very end of my class graduating from flight school. And those two guys that got them, one of them went to ranger school prior to flight school. He was a former infantryman from my class at West Point. Uh, he was an enlisted infantryman beforehand. And uh, so he, he was super delayed compared to the rest of our class. And another guy had a six-month med hold because of a ACL surgery while he was down there. So the bulk of my class weren't even offered Chinooks. And then in, in reality, the next thing I wanted to fly was a uh, was an Apache, but the course was taking so long down there that I didn't uh, want to wait around at flight school anymore because uh, there was, like I told you, there was a big delay in when you could start training. And then the Chinook or the uh, Apache course was actually about six months in duration and the Blackhawk course was three months because you're talking, learning some pretty advanced systems in the Apache. Plus you also have to go through gunnery and a bunch of other things. Um, so that course was longer. So even though I wanted to fly Chinook, you know, had the intent of wanting to fly an Apache and kind of run, you know, do that mission set, uh, I didn't want to wait around at flight school. So when it came down to actually putting my wish list down, I put Blackhawks at the top of the list, but it was probably the last aircraft I actually wanted to right. fly. You're like, fuck it, I want to get out of here. I, I go... wanted to get in a fight. Yeah, yeah, I was sick of school at that point. It's only three months of school to fly a Blackhawk? Well, I mean, you've done, uh, at that point, you've flown the training helicopter for a solid six months. What is the training bird? Uh, so at the time, uh, and they're not using it anymore, it was essentially a stripped-down OH-58 Kiowa Warrior, but it was the civilian variant, which is a Bell 206 Jet Ranger. So it's basically your two pilots up front. You could put three across the bench in the back, but it was your instructor pilot, you up front, and then your stick buddy would, would uh, fly in the back, um, and then you'd switch out halfway through the day. So by the time you graduated, how many hours had you flown? About 150. Uh, it's not a lot. School. No, and, and in fact, very few of them actually came in the in the advanced aircraft because, you know, it's much more expensive to fly all the Army aircraft. So they tried to do as much of the learning how to fly a helicopter, so to speak, portion of it, you know, with the training helicopter to minimize costs. So I think I walked out of flight school maybe with like 35, 40 hours in the Blackhawk. When you get to your unit, it's very much like, yeah, you you have a FAA commercial rotoring license, and you, you know you're you're a legal pilot as far as you know the the government or anywhere else in the world's concerned. But when you show up to your army unit, you very much have a learner's permit at that point. Sure, like you're still like you know we didn't do any sling loads, for instance, at 
you know, flight school. And there were a number of other tasks that you had to then train on when you get to your unit to actually be considered a combat qualified pilot. So um, you have to go through a progression when you get to your unit too to learn a lot, a lot more. And you were you were Fort Drum, you were in Tith Mountain. I was. Tenth Aviation. Yep. Does the weather there affect the birds at all? Uh, it's people don't know it's fucking cold. <laughs> it's basically Nova Scotia. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And I unfortunately still own a house up there. Um, oh god, also Watertown? Yeah, it's no actually in Sackett's Harbor, but uh oh, yeah, that's not so bad. Summer cottage at worst, right? Ish, yeah. But it's still terrible with like maintenance and the the oh, weather yeah. up there. But yeah, no, it uh, I actually didn't experience the weather too bad because I got there in March, so right at the end of the year. And then we had about an eight-month train-up all through the summer, and then we deployed in October. So I didn't really see the terrible weather portion. I heard horror stories from some of the guys. So we went straight to Afghanistan in October. So I, like I said, I didn't really catch a winter of flying there. And then when I came back from Afghanistan after that year, um, I transitioned actually into 2nd Brigade Combat Team as the Assistant Brigade Aviation Officer. So I was kind of the liaison at that point between you know, the Ground Infantry Brigade and the Aviation Unit for doing any sort of uh, training that they needed to do there on Fort Drum with, you know, in conjunction with the Aviation Unit. Let's talk about Afghanistan. What yep. was that? Um, so you were based out of Shank, you RC East, which is pretty much for people aren't familiar, it's the entire border with Pakistan. It's like RC East, yep. right? You did it 12 months or 15 months? 12. 12 months. Uh, what was uh, your primary mission there? Our unit was at Fob Shank, Afghanistan, which was, if you were to look at the entire area that includes RC East, we were drop dead in the middle. So our aviation company was had a lot of helicopters because not only do we support the local ground unit in Wardak, Logar, and Bamiyan provinces, but we also had the quick reaction mission, the QRF mission, for all of our East. So anytime anything major happened in the entire year that we were there, whether it was just a downed aircraft, um, we responded to the Kabul International Hotel incident, which is very similar to the Mumbai uh, terror attacks, if anybody remembers that, um, where terrorists entered the ground floor of the Kabul International Hotel just the same as happened in Mumbai, India. And uh, they they set off a couple of bombs, set the place on fire, and they literally started from ground floor to ceiling, just going through and, and killing everybody that they could find. So we responded to that. We responded to a couple of other very interesting um, incidents that happened in Kabul. Um, there was a building that was being built, essentially, where you know they had the, the floors up, but there were no exterior walls. It was essentially a construction site. And uh, these guys climbed up you know, up to the whatever 14th, 15th floor, and they were firing, lobbing fire with machine guns into uh, some of the coalition uh, forward operating bases from a from an elevated position in you know in downtown Kapul. Right. So when you would respond to those, like, what was your? Were you going into evac guys or what? So I didn't fly either of those two missions. In fact, one of them I uh, I watched. It was it was pretty wild and surreal. I watched the Kabul International Hotel incident on a feed, you know, a predator feed on the. Uh, at our uh, tactical operations center at our battalion. Uh, and it was funny, the QRF aircraft would also get used for, <laughs> we, they, they referred to them as the bailout birds because, you know, these, we had these aircraft sitting around that were just ready to go do something, you know, and it was the, you know, obviously the intent was, with you know, was something that happened on the ground, usually re related to enemy contact or something. But, uh, you know, if, if the general officer's aircraft broke down somewhere and, you know, they needed to be somewhere, then sure. call us. So Taxi service. Exactly. So, it was funny though. This is the this was the one incident where it kind of um, bit them in the ass. Is they got called to move this general because this aircraft broke. We got, we got this call from you know the special operations command and and they said uh, 
have your aircraft deposit the general at the nearest coalition fob and proceed to i don't remember the name of the fob but it was uh it was in kabul in the uh, the new zealand the kiwis they had their special operations outfit had responsibility for downtown kabul i said proceed to whatever fob it was and go get these guys and then we got a phone call on a secure phone from the uh, New Zealanders and, and you know and they got their, their crazy accent and they're like hey pick up uh, you know you're gonna pick up a sniper platform and you're gonna you're gonna set up some of our snipers on your aircraft and that's a very challenging thing to do by the way like it requires quite a bit of uh, coordination be- between talking from the sniper team to the crew chiefs to the or if we can get the sniper team up on comms to the pilots it's a lot of coordination we did that with our indigenous quick reaction force which is our pathfinder company that was uh, with us. So we had an infantry company that was stationed with us specifically because we had the QRF birds. So anytime anything happened, if we needed to move the aircraft somewhere with a ground force, we had them right with us. And so let's expo- hold on. Let's unpack this a little bit. So sure. you've got a dude with like a Barrett 50 cal on your bird. Yes. With a cargo strap running across and his barrel running through it. Yep. And you just try to keep it as still as possible for him to shoot guys. Well, from. actually, normally you're not you're not even hovering. You're you're still in flight, moving uh, at a slow slow rate of speed. But yes, so we when we set up a sniper platform, you essentially open the cargo door on the side of the aircraft. You take rigging straps. Well, there's there's rigging points in each corner of the door. So imagine a big you know square rectangular window essentially, and you put a a cargo strap from the top right corner to the bottom left corner, and then another one from the top left corner to the bottom right corner, making an X. And then they'll throw down the Barrett 50 cal right in the middle of the, on top of those towing straps, and then they'll wrap some cordage around the barrel, or around the uh, forward stock of the rifle, and then they'll hook in the uh, sniper and the spotter will usually hook into the bottom of the aircraft with a, a tether. So they're freestanding, and then then they're firing from that platform. And uh, like I said, it's a very complicated thing to do. That's badass, too. It it is pretty fun, but it's a very complicated thing to do. And again, it requires a lot of coordination. So what ended up happening, and and again, this was pretty surreal to watch this happen. And again, I wasn't there for this. I just watched it on a Predator feed. But um, our crews responded to this. And and it was was also really interesting, too, because our talk was very connected to this. The New Zealanders were not on our satellite communications platform, so they couldn't radio the aircraft. So they had to call us on the secure phone, and then we had to radio the aircraft. So we were playing, we were relaying from our talk to the aircraft, giving them commands. And the uh, rules of engagement basically said that you know you were not allowed to like suppress targets from from an aircraft with uh, without approval from I think it was like an O6 or higher at the time. And what we ended up doing uh, for that mission in particular was you know and again the intent was to was a sniper platform so we got the predator feed up and we were watching it and we could see the building was on fire and then next thing you know some of these these uh terrorists got up on top of the roof and then we could see them clear as day there was like four or five of them moving around and then a couple of them like lay down in the prone where they were lately laying on their stomach you know with their weapons trained on the two emergency doorways that would come up onto the roof so the New Zealanders were clearing the building from ground floor to ceiling and they were going all the way up top and the plan was that we were going to bring our aircraft on station, suppress the top of the building uh, where the guys were. So we're going to, you know, have the snipers engage the the top of the roof, you know, as the assault forces was, was ready to breach the stairwells and come up onto the roof and uh, take these guys out of the reproductive equation. So what, what ended up happening, though, was, was pretty wild. We actually, our aircraft got on target and we saw them pan through. So it was crazy. Like we had, we're watching it from the predator feed, which is very high. And we see our aircraft actually pan through the shot of the predators. And we knew they were on station before any commands were made 
and the Kiwis called us and they're like, hey, get them off station, like send them a minute outbound, like we're not set ready to breach and we don't wanna, you know, we don't want them to know or start shooting at the aircraft or know that we're, or, you know, we have aircraft overhead. So they left. And then all of a sudden, uh, for anybody that's seen infrared footage before when a bomb's dropped, normally it whites out the whole, the whole screen and then it comes back into focus because when the bomb detonates, usually, you know, that creates a large heat signature, right? So it like whites out the, the image and then the image comes back into focus. So we're watching this, uh, we're watching the roof and all of a sudden, all of a sudden like the screen whites out and it comes back into focus and one of the guys is, is gone. And, and we were all like, did he just, did that just happen? So we get a call like right after that happened and the Kiwi command said, yeah, we're not gonna let these guys blow themselves up on the roof, send your aircraft inbound, they're hot, like send them in. So, so this guy detonated a, a suicide vest on the roof, whether it was purposeful or inadvertent, either way, they're like, we're not gonna let these guys take a knee and blow themselves up here and right. do the martyrdom thing. Like we're going to do this deliberately. So <laughs> sent the aircraft inbound. I, I'm not faulting the Kiwis at all for how this went down. Cause it's definitely a coordination piece between the, um, you know, the shooters and the, and the pilots and we had never worked with them before right and so, that's no way to have to communicate like, it's that's, hard. that sucks yeah. yeah so uh bottom line was like we, we started seeing rounds impact the the roof uh from the snipers and they just weren't hitting these guys so finally our door gunners opened up with the the 240s and uh so the, the machine guns on the side of the aircraft they're typically designed for defensive purposes but you can't bring an apache in to a, a, an urban area right. like that so fires are a bit overkill yes uh, even 240s the, will bring the hate though the, yeah so but, you know, even the 30 millimeter cannon on the front of the Apaches do, do too much collateral damage. So that's why we were used in that uh, in that capacity. So at any rate, that was one mission. Um, you know, we responded to a couple of downed aircraft um, and put in quick reaction forces to secure areas. And then the biggest event for the whole year really was the shoot down of Extortion 17, which uh, for anybody at home that's unfamiliar, that happened on 6 August 2011. It's still to this day, the single deadliest day in history of the global war on terror. 31 Americans were killed along with, uh, I believe it was six Afghan commandos on the back of the aircraft. It's in Kunar, right? Uh, no, that was in Wardak province. Um, Lo well, that's right on the border. It's like Logar Wardak. Um, I think it was Wardak, but uh, it was in the Tangy Valley either way. So it was a, a large portion of you know the, the guys at Damneck. Um, so for everybody at home, that's SEAL Team 6. So uh, that was a that was a big big event for for our unit. We lost five crew members. You know the whole Chinook was lost. They got they got hit with an RPG on approach into uh, a landing zone, and the aircraft was a part and on fire uh, well before it ever. Were, were those Tenth Mountain guys flying that? They were not Tenth Mountain guys. Was it the, the SOAR guys? No, it was. Uh, so they had to do. Each brigade has one Chinook company. So we didn't have enough Chinooks to basically cover the whole area of operation. So anytime a brigade, like our brigade, came to Afghanistan, we needed more Chinook pilots. So they would plus you up with uh, a guard or reserve unit. So we had a we had a Kansas a Kansas guard unit that was uh, that was attached to us. So, but I mean, they had been with our unit the entire year. So, so yeah, like I said, we lost five crew members. But I mean, you know, I mean that was a big hit to the you know the, everybody on our FOB. We had supported the. Um, the soft guys uh, the entire year, and you know it was a big hit to the to SEAL community as well. Right, and that was at the end of your tour as well, right? That was in like, August. Right yeah, before and I the left end. in October. So and we uh, we lost one other guy during the deployment. Billy Sirix, he was the infantry company, the Pathfinder company I'd referenced earlier about doing quick reaction missions. He was the infantry company first sergeant. He got killed from uh, indirect fire that came into our Ford operating base. So. It sucks. Yep. All right. So summer 2014. Yep. Walk <laughs> me through this. So uh, I got out of the army early. I got uh, after the deployment. I was medically retired. 
Um, when I say early, I, I, I should have I should have served about seven and a half years with my flight school commitment, and I got out at four and a half. So I was not medically qualified to fly anymore and uh, was medically retired. So I went to work in the private sector doing logistics. And, um, you know, after, uh, after flying a $10 million helicopter every third or fourth day and, you know, being responsible for $50 million worth of helicopters and several people's lives, and, you know, 25, 25 guys in my platoon. Yeah. Um, after doing that at the age of 26, 27, moving into the private sector and watching 18 guys move boxes around a warehouse distribution facility, that wasn't moving the needle for me. So, sure. uh, and, you know, it was a good paying job and, you know, nothing to scoff at. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, I needed something that's going to kind of challenge me. So um, I was a kind of, and, and that's a common veteran struggle, right? Like a lot of people have gone through things like that. I just didn't have any passion for it. So I uh, left that position and uh, I actually went hiking for six months out west with a veteran nonprofit called Warrior Hike. And uh, while I was out there, I bumped into the Run for the Wall, which is the cross-country motorcycle ride by which all of the mostly Vietnam veterans get to Washington, D.C. for Rolling Thunder, which for anybody that's unfamiliar, every Memorial Day weekend, about 300,000 people descend on the National Mall, mostly going to the Vietnam Wall. And uh, they have a reading of all 58,000 names there. And then there, of the 300,000 people, there's about 120,000 or 150,000 motorcyclists that are there. And hence the Rolling Thunder, which is also a a play on words because that was a bombing campaign in Laos and Cambodia during right. the Vietnam War. But they have all these motorcyclists and they ride past the Vietnam Wall. And, you know, those those bikers don't just come from the D.C. metro or even the mid-Atlantic states. They start this ride two weeks out mid-May in L.A. And they ride three three routes across the U.S. and they pick people up along the way. So I, I ran into one of these uh, overnight spots in Albuquerque, New Mexico while I was hiking. And um, I was just floored with the camaraderie of that group. And... You know, here's a generation that fought in a very similar, you know, counterinsurgency conflict. And they also came home and, you know, the Vietnam generation got treated like garbage. And uh, here they were, this, you know, gelled, cohesive, awesome group of guys that uh, I was just really taken back with that camaraderie of the group. And I, you know, the wheels started turning in my head and I said, within the next five to ten years, most of these guys are trading in these Harleys and Goldwings for rascal scooters and walkers and golf carts <laughs> in Florida. Right. Less, less exciting means of transportation. And our, you know, our generation that's fought in a global run terror, we, we already had of the 250 bikes that were in Albuquerque, there were already 30 or 40 GWAT vets joining in with the Vietnam guys. And I kind of said to myself, you know, if, if these traditions are going to continue in the next 10, you know, five to 10 years, we're probably going to hit a tipping point where there are going to be more global run terror veterans doing this ride than there are going to be Vietnam guys at their age. And at that point, it begs the question, like, what do we ride to? So I didn't know anything about the process. Uh, I didn't, which just briefly, you know, you have to get a bill passed in Congress to even authorize building a memorial. Then you enter a, usually about a two-year window where you're designating where the location of the memorial would go in Washington. And then usually about another two to three-year process where you're getting an approval for the design of the memorial. Well, on top of all that, like there's a, already a law in the books that says conflict's got to be over for X amount of years, right? Yes. And this shit's just not ending. We Correct. still got troops in Afghanistan. That's the biggest holdup right now. So when I said getting a bill passed, so not only do we have to get a bill that authorizes the memorial and it names, you know, my nonprofit, the Global War on Terror Memorial Foundation, as the entity that will take on building the memorial not only does it do that, but it also, this, this bill that we currently have in Congress, H.R. 873, um, which Congressman Mike Gallagher, who's a Marine veteran from Wisconsin, introduced along with uh, Congressman Seth Moulton, who's also a Marine veteran. Congressman Gallagher is a Republican and Congressman Moulton's a Democrat, so they introduced it very bipartisan. And the, the bill currently has like 
I think it's literally split 12-12 with co-sponsors, Dem and Republicans. So we're, it's a very, you know, bipartisan push for this. But in addition to approving it, it also provides us an exemption to the three lines in the 1986 Commemorative Works Act, which you got to understand they wrote this law in 86 with a 1986 understanding of war, where we had clearly defined start and end dates. And as you, you mentioned, Nick, like this war is not going to end. Like everything tank is saying that this is a multi-generational conflict that's going to go on for decades. Right. So this, this bill that we have exempts us from three lines in the 1986 uh, Commemorative Works Act, which has this 10-year restriction in it. So the first phase of this is really pushing to get this legislation through. And um, we recently just had a press conference to announce the bill two weeks ago, which generated uh, some follow-on media from uh, Military Times, Stars and Stripes, the San Diego Union Tribune, which the whole you know naval base out in San Diego, uh, and a lot of the Marines that are out there as well fall under. And uh, so we've, we've generated, and we've also been featured in the Washington Post, New York Times, Fox and Friends. So we've generated a decent bit of media exposure on the issue. And we've also partnered with a large list of veteran service organizations to include the VFW, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, Wounded Warrior Project, Green Beret Foundation, Team Rubicon, the Mission Continues, Team White and Blue, and there's a laundry list of other VSOs. So they're all coming together saying, hey, you know, we've been doing this for 15 years now. You know, a 40-year-old service member that's, that sees the first airfield in Kandahar in 2001 when we first kicked off the war, that guy's 56 today. Right. And we, as I, like, as I mentioned, this is like a seven-year process to get this done. So that guy's going to be a senior citizen and taking his grandkids to see this memorial. So that's why we've, we've been making the push that, you know, now's the time to work on this. And uh, we're finally starting to, to make some headway with it. So your best estimate right now, when do you think construction complete? The mark we have on the wall right now is uh, we would like to unveil it on September 11th, summer 20, or, you know, fall uh, 2024. This is not cheap. Actually, it's it's not terrible. Um, I mean, you know, it depends on your frame of reference with money, right? Because there's some private equity firms that could, you know, cut a check and not bat an eyelash at this number. But, sure. Uh, so the historic cost for the Vietnam Wall and the Korean War Memorial adjusted for inflation in today's dollars is $23 million and $29 million respectively. It's not as much as I thought it would be. Well, because... World War II Memorial, <laughs> it's like... Hundred, half uh, a billion dollars. <laughs> no, it was a hundred. But they had to do a ton of work with lobbying, and they like they got sued based on the site where it was going to go, and then they had to make a bunch of changes. So like, I think the total program cost for that was around 180 million, because 80 of that ended up being, you know, working with Congress and lobbying and the federal commissions. Um, a lot of lawyers involved. Lawyers, overhead staff. Um, we, we're running a pretty lean show with uh, our organization right now, and when I say lean, I mean like really lean. I should be paying myself and other people a lot more money, but. Uh, how much money do you need to, to raise? We're reasonably looking at for construction costs. And again, and this is a huge challenge too, is Congress laid out this process, which I said was legislation followed by site selection followed by design. But they've also decided that we're not going to use taxpayer dollars for this, which we're fine with. You know, we, we think we should raise some money privately and there's enough goodwill toward the veteran community to do that. But the way this works I is, wouldn't necessarily agree with that. Well, you know, e either way, how, however you want to view it. Right. The way this works is... That's the process, but the way that donors want to donate to this are, what's it going to look like, followed by where's it going, and then, oh, by the way, are you allowed to do this? So it's the, literally the exact opposite. You can't answer any of those three questions with a yes. Correct. <laughs> so it's really challenging to drive money into the, this project early, but so we're estimating for construction costs, building something more on the size and scope of Vietnam and Korea. So we're saying about in the 25 to 35 million range for construction. 
And then uh, based on operations for our organization, um, first year we're looking at about a half a million for operating expenses, and then year over year after that about three quarters of a million. So when you add in about over over the next eight years, you know, 5.5 million for operating expenses. So if you shoot the low number, you're looking at about 30 mil, and you're shooting the high number, you know, adding that into the construction costs, you're about 40 million. So total programming costs out the door should be between 30 and 40 million. Once the bill gets passed, you're in full-blown go mode then, right? We are. Yeah. I mean, we're, we've, I feel like we've kind of been in full-blown go mode for the last two and a half years that I've been working on this because I've been a full-time grad student while this has been going on too. So it's a heavy lift. It, uh, yeah, I, uh, you know, I've shedded three girlfriends in the last year and a half. I don't sleep a lot. It's, you know, it's part of, part of the gig, you know, you know, the deal running a nonprofit and having a family and being right. a student too. So, well, so where are we at with the bill? Cause dude, strong bipartisan support. Yep. Doesn't really mean shit nowadays. <laughs> you know, um, so the biggest pushback that we've gotten with this whole bill, well, there's been, been two major points. One, a lot of the Democrats have not liked the name, which is, you know, the Global War on Terror Memorial Foundation. And then in the bill, the, the name of the memorial will be the National Global War on Terrorism Memorial. Again, that's a President Obama, you know, thing where he moved away from the language that was more of a, a President Bush uh, phrase and term. But at the end of the day, the funny part with that is, is being a nonprofit, you in my opinion, not all do, um, but you know, you legally should be apolitical. Um, and, uh, and a lot of nonprofits, unfortunately, don't. But uh, in our case, we, we very much stick to that. And when we had this decision-making process as to what we were going to call this, because people suggested, are we call it the Post-9-11 Veterans Memorial, or we call this, or call that, or we call it the Long War Memorial? Like, what, what are we going to call this? What we def defaulted to at the end of the day is the DOD really is the objective third-party scorekeeper in this you know, regard. And um, the unfortunate part is, you know, Congress now is made up of about 20% veterans. But in 1974, when we moved to an all-volunteer force, 330 members out of 535 were, had veteran status because there were a lot of Korean and Vietnam, or a lot of Korean and World War II veterans. So that number is drastically different now. So not only are our legislators generally, you know, very few of them have served in uniform by comparison to years prior. The biggest problem, in my opinion, is that the staff that works on Capitol Hill adequately reflects the population at large. Sure. One percent. That's yeah. what it is. So when I go in and I talk to staff a lot of times, I have to do a lot of education on this because I'll, I'll get a demo office. They'll say, like, well, we don't like the name. And I'll say, OK. I was like, well, what would you like to call it? And they'll be like, well, what about Iraq and Afghanistan? I said, OK, well, you know, what do we do about the guys that have been doing foreign internal defense and counterterrorism operations in South America or the Horn of Africa or Yemen or Syria or Southeast Asia? And then usually they're like, oh, yeah, oh, I see what you're saying. And then I also walk the dog for him and say, look, like the DOD has a hierarchy of war. It's an upside down triangle. And at the top of it, you have war. And in the middle of that triangle, you have name campaigns and operations. And at the bottom of that triangle, you have battles and engagements. Like that's the hierarchy of war. Operation Enduring Freedom, Iraqi Freedom, uh, New Dawn, Freedom Sentinel, and Inherent Resolve are all named campaigns of part of the larger war effort, which is the global war on terrorism. And which they give you a medal for, the GWAT Service Medal, the GWAT Expeditionary Medal. You're walking this right where I'm going. So our logo for the organization has the global war on terrorism service medal in it. And I wear the GWAT ribbon on my lapel on every suit and sport coat that I'm wearing and, you know, when I'm on Capitol Hill. And I point to that medal and I said, look, I was like, this service medal has been awarded starting in 03, but it is from, you know, from September 11th, 2001, and it's for all contingency military operations in support of, and it is awarded to a date yet to be determined. I said, so you cannot like the name all you want, but this is the officially recognized doctrinal name 
So what do you want to call this thing? And usually they're like one of two things. They're like, okay, I'll take this to my boss or they're still like, you know, just really uh, obtuse. And they're like, well, we still don't like the name. And I'm like, okay, well, can you provide me a better one? No. Right. Right. So, and it's, uh, so that, that's one issue is the name. And then the other issue too, is, you know, that you get that question of like, well, well, why now? And, you know, then I have to walk the dog with the, Hey, here's a 40 year old service member. We're not even talking in general or a sergeant major. Like we're not talking, you know, a senior person, you know, that was probably in their fifties, late fifties, you know, as a, as a senior military officer, a senior NCO, you're talking, you know, just, just the average, you know, the senior most enlisted guy at the company level in 01, that's the guy that's going to be a senior citizen. Right. Some of these, some of these senior military folks from 01, they're going to be, they're going to probably going to have passed already before we get this done. Yeah. And that's when we start right now. So well, some of the, some of the vets in Congress and the Senate are old guys, right? Like Lindsey Graham is an OEF vet, right? And Lindsey Graham ain't young. Yeah. <laughs> Man, it's such a huge age because there are 19 year old current like OEF, OIF veterans. Yeah. And then there's 60 year olds. Yeah. I mean, hell, the last draftee into the army from Vietnam retired like three years ago. Yeah. Fuck. It's, it's wild. You know, so it's been a it's been a long haul. You know, those last two and a half years has been a challenge. Capitol Hill doesn't move quickly, which you know is also a challenge for us. With like I said, the fundraising, everybody wants to donate to it as the progress is made, where you can answer those questions and the, the right. legislation is the big hurdle up front. So that's been a challenge. But we've been, like I said, we've been making a lot of progress here in the last little bit of time. We're about to have a Senate companion bill introduced by Senator Joni Ernst from Iowa. She's a she's a former Army Lieutenant Colonel in the Reserves. She's, I think she's deployed twice. Her office is going to be introducing a bill, and we've already lined up a number of co-sponsors in the Senate for that bill. Uh, so we're, we're we're making progress, um, you know. And, and the other thing that benefits us tremendously is that uh, former Congressman Ryan Zinke, former Navy SEAL from Montana, he introduced our our bill last Congress, which got seventy six co-sponsors in in seven working weeks of Congress, because it was introduced September twelfth, and then Congress recessed three weeks later for the election for six weeks. And let me tell you, nobody was paying attention to anything right. prior to the election. And right. then when they came back and they said, oh, well, the election went a certain way and, you know, we're all kind of content to sit on our hands at this point. Not a lot of progress was done on, on legislation. But even in that seven-week window, we got 76 co-sponsors on the bill. Well, Congressman Ryan Zinke isn't Congressman Ryan Zinke anymore. He is now Secretary for the Interior Zinke. And uh, he's quite literally the landowner of the National Mall because Interior right. owns the National Park right. Service. Not a bad ally to have. No. He can uh, get the paperwork signed. So we have a cabinet member that is is still very much engaged on this topic and uh, very much wants to help. So once we get past the legislation phase and we get into the site selection and the design process, you know, the guy who oversees a lot of these decision-making bodies or, or portions of the decision-making bodies as part of the National Capital Memorial Advisory Commission, uh, he can very much help influence uh, and shape this process for us in a very positive way. So, That's awesome. Yeah. For the people listening, if they want to donate, get involved, find out more, where where can they go? Yeah, go to our website. It's uh, just gwattmemorialfoundation.org. And uh, at GWOTMF as our consistent handle across all the different platforms. Um, yeah, I like our Facebook page. And we uh, we actually have a, if you go on our website as well and you um, you want to actually let your legislator know, both your congressman and both your state senators from your state. Uh, you can go right on our website, put your name, address, phone number, email on there, hit send, and literally it will send three separate emails, three separate tweets, three separate Facebook messages. You can even call, it'll give you the phone numbers for your legislators and talking points if you want to call the office right on our website. And um, that's an easy way to, you know, even if you don't, or are not in a position to donate $5 or whatever, you can actually... Uh, is that the most helpful way for someone to, to get involved is to reach um, out to their... 
yeah, at this stage in the game, honestly, yes, because again, as I told you, that legislation is uh, is, is the big hurdle for us to actually be able to drive money in to you know to to actually get this thing built in seven years. So that that bit, it's the big first hurdle. So letting your legislator know that this is something that's important to you, um, and again, it, not only are you able to do it on our website, but you can literally do that in under a minute and a half on our website. We've made it super simple. Um, it's an auto-generated email. You have the ability to edit it. Like you know, if you wanted to get on there and say, "Hey, my name's Nick Grimes. I'm a constituent, and I'm a you know I'm a veteran of X, Y, and Z." You can do that. And so it's uh, it's a pretty slick process. So those are some ways that people can uh, help and get engaged. Awesome. Hey, Andrew Brennan. It's been great, man. Thanks for joining us today. We'll have to have you on again sometime. Yeah, appreciate it, Nick. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Longest War. If you like what you heard, be sure to like us, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. And visit us on Facebook and Twitter and Grinder. Was that good? The, the, the outro was all right? That one? Nothing specific. I don't remember what's what, so. Oh, sorry. All right, we good now? All right.